welcome to another episode of Amplipod. I'm Jennifer Blood. And I'm Rupa Palai. So, Rupa, I understand you had the opportunity to chat with Alma Gottlieb over the summer. I did, Jenny. Alma is a professor emerita in anthropology, African studies, and gender and women's studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. She's currently a visiting scholar at Brown University. We spoke about ethnography and her approach to writing. Have you ever read Alma's work? No, I never got the chance yet. When listening to Alma sharing her writing process, I was very intrigued to start reading. How did you come across Alma's work? Well, I never read her stuff until a few years ago, when I was a teaching assistant for a course on the anthropology of Africa. My instructor assigned Parallel Worlds, which is a memoir Alma wrote with her husband, Philip Graham, about her fieldwork experience. I was blown away with how our students responded to the text. They were emotionally involved and critically thinking about fieldwork. And what do you mean, critically thinking about fieldwork? Well, as an anthropologist in the field, when do you intervene in things? How involved should one get in the communities we research? The text had them thinking about the reality and messiness of doing fieldwork. That's great. So interesting. Well, let's hear what you all talked about. Alma Gottlieb, welcome to Anthropod. Thank you so much for inviting me. So before we get into our conversation on ethnography, I was wondering if you could share how you got into anthropology. There's always a backstory for how we chose the career we did, right? For me, a lot of the answer is generational. I came of age in the late 60s and early 70s uh, when my generation was eagerly questioning everything. And uh, part of what we were questioning was the structure of society, no less. (laughs) So many in my generation figured out careers that would dignify that questioning habit and challenge the structures of patriarchy, empire, heterosexism, and white privilege, among others, that uh, we saw causing so much misery around us. Coming of age at a time when the Vietnam War was being uh, televised on the nightly news also gave my generation an easy entree into thinking globally. And so the combination of all of those factors for me made anthropology a real (laughs) no-brainer. And I have to say, you know, back in... Well, the first anthropology books that I read on my own in an independent study course that I created in high school uh, back in 19, I want to say 69 probably, (laughs) really caught my fancy. And I did decide to become an anthropologist uh, during the summer between my sophomore and junior year uh, back in 1973. And I have to say from the moment I said I do uh, to the discipline, which uh, asked me to spend my life with it, um, I haven't regretted it. It's interesting that you actually started thinking about it in high school. Well, it wasn't a course, for sure. I don't know that there was any high school in America in the 60s that was teaching anthropology. But I had a very forward-thinking, uh, hippie-style health teacher in maybe 10th grade who one day was talking a lot about methods of peace and paths towards peace using the course curriculum of mental health as a very uh, progressive springboard for thinking about global issues. (laughs) 
and mentioned something about the Hopi being the most peaceful society in the world. And that uh, pricked my 15-year-old ears. <laughs> and I was constantly looking for utopias and made a mental note, hmm, Hopi, I should check something about that out. And then the next year, um, I took one look at my social studies teacher who had a support the Vietnam War button on his lapel, decided that he wasn't worth my time, and proposed to him that instead of going to social studies 11th grade style, I could just do an independent study on the Hopi. And uh, to his credit, I think he recognized that the two of us probably weren't going to get along very well anyway, so he may as well just get me out of his class. <laughs> and it was the late 60s, and one did things like that. So I did an independent study on the Hopi at the age of 16, and that's what led me to anthropology. I was lucky enough to live in New York, and every Saturday I would take the train into Manhattan and spend eight hours at the New York Public Library, and that's where I first read early work uh, on the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis um, and read all about kinship structures among the Hopi, none of which I understood, but I kept making mental notes thinking maybe at some point this might make sense to me if I actually take some anthropology. <laughs> that's hilarious. So kind of an unorthodox entree. Well, it's cool that you um, you had that independent drive to find out more about something, and you found it within the discipline of anthropology. Yeah, and for um, somebody like me who had a lot of crazy wide-ranging interests, I mentioned that I decided to commit to anthropology in my junior year, despite having fallen in love with it very early. Um, and the reason for that is that I had so many other interests. At one point, I was thinking of becoming a professional pianist, at another a dancer, another an actress, another poet, mostly in the arts. And I was indecisive, as many of my anthropology major students, uh, I found, have been, until I found that anthropology was the one discipline that would let me study anything. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> uh, that that was the line that I used for the past 35 years. Whatever you're interested in, we've got it for you if, if there's anything to do with humans. <laughs> Let's uh, go ahead and shift gears then to talk about ethnography. If you don't mind, could you offer your own definition and what is ethnography? Sure. I tend to think of ethnography in a very simple way. It's just a, a simple but powerful set of tools that let us understand the human condition from the bottom up. So ethnography for me is the qualitative research method par excellence because it insists on the importance of the human. And the importance of the human not in an abstract structural sense, but in an on-the-ground sense at the level of the individual. So we train ourselves and our students to listen to other people. Interview methods are classically the heart of the ethnographic method because they allow us to ask questions of individuals and listen very carefully to their answers. But what really distinguishes ethnography from other interview-based methods used by other disciplines is the full-scale immersion in a community. So not only do we use formal interview methods, but we do what I sometimes call simply deep hanging out. <laughs> or as my writer husband, Philip Graham, sometimes affectionately calls it, uh, gossip with footnotes. That's a good uh, new term for what it is. <laughs> so 
in the old days, when I was first trained in graduate school, the expectation was that we go somewhere, typically at that point, it was somewhere far away and, and somewhat exotic, for a very long period. And I was told a, a year was the absolute minimum, two years would normally be the maximum, and somewhere in between was typical. Uh, leading up to that, we were encouraged to do as much uh, study of the place where we would be living as we could, including learning the local language or languages if possible. And certainly once we got there, delving into the daily habits of uh, a different lifestyle, including language habits. So learning a local language as fluently as possible. I think that's still a little bit of an ideal in ethnography, but it becomes increasingly difficult for many to practice it. So I think even within anthropology, there's a lot more flexibility. Certainly many, many in your generation are practicing urban ethnography, and so that makes it a lot more feasible to browse, to go in and out of the field rather than flying on one expensive, long plane flight halfway around the world and staying there for a year. Um, many of my students and others that I've seen of younger generations often go to a place for a couple of months, a retreat, return. Sometimes that has to do with funding, uh, which is harder and harder to secure. And if you don't have a, one major grant, it can become impossible to go somewhere for a full year. So. I think we've been tweaking the methods. Some in my generation, the purists belie that fact and say, oh, ethnography isn't what it used to be. I try not to sound too old and curmudgeon and <laughs> acknowledge that it's a different world. And there might even be some advantages to doing punctuated short immersions. Because, for example, when you go someplace for a couple months and leave for maybe a couple weeks and return, or maybe even a couple months later, you do have the advantage of reviewing everything that you experienced and learned and returning with a fresh start. There's also the welcome factor. Most places in the world, there are some exceptions, but in most places, people will be happy to see you return after you leave, um, as long as you haven't done anything horrendous to offend everybody. So I think ethnography is changing, and as it's becoming more popular, others in some of our uh, sister fields in the social sciences and even the humanities are starting to use it, and uh, many of the old guard see that it's becoming diluted. Uh, what can you learn in a two-week period? That would be a value, some of my colleagues think. But even, you know, two weeks is better than zero weeks. <laughs> So sure, you learn more in two years than you learn in two weeks. But if we look at the nature of qualitative inquiry, any conversation is going to get you somewhere that you wouldn't have gone um, if you're just looking at um, statistics in a quantitative survey. For some years, I taught a series of workshops in how to do uh, ethnographic or qualitative research to students in the social science disciplines outside of anthropology. Okay. And we were particularly hoping to attract economists and political scientists and psychologists and others in some fields that typically specialize in quantitative rather than qualitative research. 
And at first, their notion of ethnography is doing a one-hour interview or maybe even a 20-minute interview with somebody like the Minister of the Economy or Finance. And if you could do a 20-minute interview with a Minister of Finance, uh, you'd really be made if you were an economist in, in the 90s. And my goal was to expand their view and tell them, well, that's a great beginning to sit down and talk with the Minister of Finance of India. You'll get a lot of insight into the top-down vision of uh, what government leaders have in mind. But what about after doing that interview, going out into the marketplace and asking the poorest shopkeepers who are peddling wares illegally what they think of the minister's plans? And you'll get a very different perspective, not the right perspective, not the wrong perspective, just a different one. And at first they were sort of unnerved by that. And I convinced a few of them to try it out and they did and, and it changed their lives. You know, the, the power of, of ethnography can be incredible if, if you give it a chance. <laughs> well, it's, it's nice that some of these individuals were able to overcome that resistance to see what benefit it can have. Also thinking about the speed now, there is a tendency for anthropology to take forever to do. People will go out in the field, but then the write-up stage takes three, four, maybe 10 years sometimes. So the potentials of beating up ethnography a little bit is interesting to think about. You're somehow reminding me of the new trend in speed dating, which somehow (laughs) seems maybe a a social version of what you're talking about. Um, And I'm saying that only partly flippantly because everything seems to be hurried these days. The Facebook and even more of Twitter generation seems to have less patience for writing at length. Our students often get bored reading something more than a page. So part of what you're saying, the the length to degree, why it takes so long sometimes to finish a degree in anthropology uh, because of the write-up factor, that I think is a catastrophe of the crisis in the academy in general. Academic funding is plummeting. Uh, We have more and more grad students vying for short falling funds, our national, I'm speaking here of the U.S., commitment to higher education is paltry and in danger, and the academy is really in a moment of crisis, and and it's a long moment. It's been going on for a while. It just seems like um, people will continue to struggle with taking time and dealing with all the different responsibilities that they have upon them. Mm-hmm. until we, we focus a little bit more about reworking the current mm-hmm. system that is. Mm-hmm. So. In my own teaching career, if I look back on uh, the evolution of my syllabi, my first probably 10 years of teaching, every year my syllabi tended to get longer and longer as more and more great books and articles were published, and I didn't want to become an old fuddy-duddy and just teach old classics, so I wanted to add on new stuff and show my um, students uh, what was going on in the contemporary world of anthropology. So my syllabi was just getting longer and longer, and it was becoming unworkable, and nobody had time to read 10 books a week for one class. <laughs> so I, you know, really found myself struggling with how much new stuff can I add, how much old stuff can I subtract. I was mentioning that because I think part of the reason potentially for the long time to degree is this agglutinative effect of the academy. As our discipline matures, we have more and more scholars writing more and more stuff. And so I think some of our graduate students feel 
nervous about saying they're done because they know there's so much more stuff out there to read. Um, <laughs> so I'm hearing a little maybe recognition giggle on your part. Indeed. My committee is complaining about that on my end. Okay. So I think part of what we need to do on the part of the faculty is emotional work with our students and say, you're never going to read it all. We're never going to read it all. Nobody can read it all. There's too much stuff. So we just need to figure out when it's enough at the moment and put the rest on hold and then figure out the fine art of browsing and figuring out what's important. Yeah, we'll get to it eventually, or maybe we won't get to it, but we can try as best we can and just try and work with what you have right now. Yeah, it's it's about choice. Eventually, uh, we have to declare a project done, even if we know there's more to be said, there's more to be written, there's more to be read. One of my favorite books of all time uh, is a collection of articles that my old undergraduate mentor, Sherry Ortner, put together of some of her most canonical articles that really had a big effect on changing the discipline. She collected them along with some others, republished them, and wrote a postscript about each one, 5, 10, 15, sometimes 20 years later, uh, reflecting on all of the comments that the articles had attracted and rethinking them, sometimes saying, yeah, I got this wrong. I don't know what I was thinking. Or I still stand by my guns even though, you know, X has critiqued it. So even, you know, when we pull the trigger and publish something, that's not the end of the story. And nowadays with the web, publishing itself is changing so dramatically, it has already, that the notion of a, a final word once you've published it is really absurd because we can always revisit things on the web. Definitely. And I think that could be helpful for a lot of people who are stuck in that writing process and like paralyzed by thinking, oh, I'm not going to get it right. It needs to be perfect immediately. Mm -hmm. Whatever you produce is a, it's a living document. It will get published, but then you can still keep working on it or be in conversation with it now, especially with the way that things are published and you have you know, the ability to comment back and forth with the audience. Yes, I love that phrase, a living document. I think that that could be a real motto um, for many, especially in your generation, who are feeling, as you said, paralyzed by um, the writing process. Well, speaking of the writing process, how do you, you start writing up or thinking about how you're going to take all of this research that you have done to create an ethnography? Because you have written quite a lot of ethnographies and some really fascinating and interesting approaches to writing too. So My approach to writing uh, is variable. I wouldn't say I have a single approach. Um, if anything, there's sort of a spectrum on the one end of the spectrum. I do have an intuitive gut sense and I, I think if I look back at all my writings, my best writing starts with a gut. <laughs> rather than an outline. That said, outlines are very helpful. <laughs> so for me, tacking back and forth between the emotional intuitive angle of what really matters in this mass of data and shaping it, the scientist in me uh, wants to think rationally about what's the argument, where is it starting. If I wanted to do a classic high school 1ABC, 2ABC kind of outline, what would it look like um, without making it boring? Um, that for me is always the challenge, keeping it structured and organized so it makes sense and it's rational and I can identify the argument and the reader can identify the argument and yet keeping the passion. When I have have taught a dissertation writing seminar. The very first day of 
class, I always had students do a little bit of sort of an intuitive exercise. They often came in terrified. Many of them were just recently back from the field, accompanied by a couple hundred or maybe a couple thousand pages of field notes. They had a sense that there was a good dissertation hiding somewhere in the corners, but they had no idea what it was or where it was lurking. And so I think they expected me to ask them to produce an outline, and that paralyzed them even more. And so I asked them instead to take this more intuitive approach. I would turn down the lights in the room, ask them to close their eyes, and think back on the mass of fieldwork experiences that remains in their memory and start free writing one thing that happened to them, either an incident in which they were involved or a story that they might have heard, uh, but something that really somehow remained at the forefront of their memory when they think about their fieldwork. And it may or may not have anything to do with their dissertation topic. And inevitably, when I did that, everyone started writing like crazy, and it really freed them. And then they found, the next week, I asked them to start outlining. (laughs) And they really found, having done that very intuitive gut exercise, that the more disciplined exercise of outlining came more easily. So that's a a little trick that I learned pedagogically teaching that I've tried to follow myself in one way or another, sort of tacking back and forth between closing my eyes and thinking about what feels right about the data that I really want to be talking about that's speaking to me, sort of in a poetic way, and then what's this article or book going to look like as an, an argument. So how did you come to trust your own gut? Was that a suggestion that one of your uh, committee members offered you? (laughs) Interesting question. In fact, yes and no. It was offered as a suggestion by one of my professors in graduate school. He wasn't on my committee. He was an older generation Africanist named Edward Winter. And when I got back from the field and uh, returned to the University of Virginia, where I got my degree uh, for the summer to teach a course, uh, I'd been back already for six months, and I hadn't written a goddamn word. I was just totally paralyzed. For six months, I had no idea where to start. And I looked at the outline that I had crafted of my dissertation before I left, and it just looked like this dead document that didn't speak to me. And I had all these vibrant stories in my head. I had very, very intense fieldwork experiences, almost dying many times, saving lives. Um, It was a very immersive, emotionally um, turbulent period, and I just didn't know where to start. And so I was sort of wringing my hands with this old mentor, uh, Ed Winter, and he said, Alma, don't even look at your field notes. Put them away. Just start writing from memory write whatever you remember that's important and write and write and write for the next year. Don't even look at your field notes at the end of your year, then you can look. And I thought he was crazy. I thought that was the most ridiculous advice I'd ever seen. I'd spent six months plowing through my field notes and the more I read, the more confused I was. And so I figured, well, even though it's ridiculous, I'll file it away. Maybe someday it'll be helpful. So I wrote a dissertation without that advice. It was an all right dissertation. It wasn't great. I think it had some nuggets of good ideas, but it was certainly not beautifully written. It wasn't written from the heart. And after that, I worked on some other pieces. I wrote some articles. And then my writer uh, husband, Philip Graham, and I decided to write a memoir together. And it was really that process 
that freed me from the yoke of feeling wedded to a particular kind of academic writing that was choking me. And I just felt like I was drowning if I had to follow this sort of scientific formulaic uh, structure. And writing the memoir in a very different key from my academic writing uh, liberated me. And since then, I would say that it's been a lot easier for me to, to trust my gut because I saw where it could lead. There was a lot of technical lessons that I learned in writing that memoir uh, from my writer husband. Uh, I learned from him how to write narrative, and I learned that uh, writing narrative is not just stream of consciousness flow. There are specific techniques, uh, and if it's done well, it can be uh, very moving. And since that book, uh, which was written as a narrative without footnotes or bibliography, meant to be appealing to an ordinary reader. I've made use of those kinds of techniques in my academic writing to a lesser extent, but incorporating uh, bits and pieces of conversation and people's lives in an academic structure so as to bring some voices and humanity to these topics that interest us theoretically. Yeah, the memoir that you wrote with um, your husband is Parallel Worlds. That's the first one, and we had so much fun writing it that uh, some years later, uh, and after having been back, we did decide to write a sequel uh, called uh, Braided Worlds. And the two together, but certainly the first, as I said, really changed how I approach writing and reading. In order, I might mention, to learn these narrative techniques the first time in writing Parallel Worlds, I was not only in conversation with my writer husband, who, who is a creative writer and, and very skilled at teaching writing techniques, uh, but I also started reading a whole lot of good writing by people who are, have no PhDs. <laughs> And I specifically targeted The New Yorker, since it was renowned and still is for publishing some of the best nonfiction uh, prose on the planet. And I figured if, if these people could get published in The New Yorker, they probably have some things to tell me. And I would just sit down and read an issue of The New Yorker to see how the writer was crafting the argument. And I learned a lot from uh, The New Yorker writers. They became my backstage invisible teachers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to know the step to good writing is to read good writing. So. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, Olympic gold medalists do a lot uh, to practice their craft. Some of it is practicing eight hours a day, and some of it is watching other great athletes to see what they do. And I think uh, in the academy, uh, we often maybe overlook the fact that we are training scholars who are authors. Often we think about writing as somehow a process that just happens without really teaching it. Can we take a moment to talk a little bit about the book that you have coming out in November, um, A World of Babies? Great. So tell us a little bit about what this book is about and how it came to be, because it follows in the line of the work that you started with your husband with um, Parallel Worlds of Embracing 
a different kind of ethnographic writing. Yes, yeah, sometimes both of those books, as well as Braided Worlds, the three books have been called experimental. Um, I'm not sure that I necessarily would apply that label, although I get why it's applied, because they, all these books certainly look very different from <laughs> mainstream academic books, um, but they have been published by academic publishers. So you, um, these books are called experimental, so like experimental ethnography, what exactly does that mean? Well, so we're experimenting with writing forms from the perspective of traditional mainstream conservative approaches to academia um, and academic writing. For Parallel Worlds and Braided Worlds, both of those books are written as narratives. As I mentioned, there's um, no bibliography. There are no footnotes. Um, my writer husband um, exercised veto power. We each, in negotiating our writing styles early on, decided what we would want to have veto power over for the other. For me, my veto power was making stuff up. So <laughs> Philip, being a fiction writer, I knew uh, would be tempted to make stuff up because that's what he did for a living. <laughs> fiction writers create fictions. That wasn't going to work for this book. So I got to have veto power over any Thing that he really wanted to invent. His veto power was more at the linguistic level, and that was jargon. So any $10 words that would require somebody without a PhD in anthropology to look it up, out, out the window. <laughs> that was really challenging for me. I mean, I hadn't realized how jargonistic my writing had been before my husband's jargon veto came into operation. We uh, started a jargon uh, alert, and anytime there was a word that he knew somebody without a PhD in anthropology would have to look up, he would just sound the alert. Kind of sounded like a foghorn. Jargon <laughs> <laughs> <Dark> alert. <laughs> um, and so I, at first, found those alerts painful. In the end, I saw them as a gift because if we're not going to rely on jargon, that is complicated words that require a PhD to understand, or neologisms, words that we've invented because somehow we claim that the English language with its hundreds of thousands of words uh, isn't rich enough. <laughs> if we're not going to use one of those words, then we're going to have to write clearly. And writing clearly turns out to be not as easy as we imagine. <laughs> it actually takes work to write clearly. A World of Babies, the new book, is more experimental um, because we actually did invent a genre. Essentially, we took the genre of childcare manuals or parenting guidebooks, which is itself a subset of a how-to guide. And the, we have lots and lots of how-to guides uh, in the Western world, ranging from how to fix um, a flat tire <laughs> uh, to how to bake a cake. We have cookbooks, uh, how to cure a cold, lots of medical books. So the, the how-to guidebook for professionals and lay people alike is a very, very well-known genre. And we took that genre for parenting and we turned it upside down and we poked fun at it. <laughs> so the genre itself, by definition, because of what it claims, it claims to have expertise, otherwise uh, you wouldn't try and convince a reader to read it. The genre itself, in effect, assumes that there's one right answer to the question of how do you do X, in this case, how do you raise children, right? And so these um, how-to uh, parenting books, how to raise a successful child, a happy child, a fill-in-the-blank child, Christian, moral, whatever your favorite kind of child is. <laughs> All of those books, uh, as lengthy as they are, essentially have at their heart the assumption that there's one right way to do it. 
And that really bothered me as an anthropologist. Cultural Relativity 101 lesson tells us there's always more than one way to do everything. <laughs> and when it comes to parenting, uh, there's a whole lot of ways to parent. And at the same time, uh, those of us who are parents tend to really take our, our parenting style quite seriously and tend to be easily judgmental of others. And so these parenting textbooks um, or how-to guidebooks are very judgmental about any way other than the way that they are advocating. And as a new mother, when I first started working on uh, the first edition of A World of Babies, that really bothered me because I had already, having lived for long periods in small villages in the heart of the rainforest in West Africa, been exposed to very different parenting practices and assumptions uh, from what I'd seen in the U.S. So I knew there were at least two. <laughs> And if there were two, there were probably hundreds more. <laughs> and so with A World of Babies, we decided to borrow the genre of how to raise a child and poke fun at it and collect uh, created manuals that we invented for how to raise a child in different societies around the world, each one of them sounding as authoritative as the Dr. Spock or Penelope Leach or Barry Brazelton guides that are so popular, but proposing very, very different strategies. And so the juxtaposition of, in the first volume, seven different child-rearing practices, in the new edition, eight different child-rearing practices, implicitly makes the case uh, there's no one right way to do it. It's such a great approach because, yeah, there's so many different ways of raising babies. It is entertaining but very informative, but it's done in a way that people outside in anthropology would take to it. I hope so. <laughs> we did write it with multiple audiences in mind. In that sense, perhaps it was my trickiest book to write. We wrote it certainly with uh, scholars interested in the anthropology of childhood in mind uh, with students who would be taking child development classes, family structure classes, anthropology of the family classes. And the first edition um, was taught very widely across many different disciplines. I think I saw a count of something like 19 different disciplines. <laughs> so it, it kind of caught on. But at the same time, we also hoped that it might interest uh, new mothers in particular. And for me, perhaps beyond that classroom success, the most exciting thing about the success of the book is that it's been given as a gift at baby showers a lot. <laughs> and that was really a surprise, but I first had an inkling that that might happen soon after the first edition was published, and I did some radio interviews, and several of them were live call-in interviews, and the very first one uh, had people calling in who were not anthropologists, didn't have a PhD in everything, anything. Um, they were uh, new mothers, confused about what to do with their a crying kid, and finding it refreshing to hear that there might not be one right way that would work for everybody. <laughs> that if their mother-in-law told them, why don't you do X, and it didn't work, that didn't mean that they were a bad mother, <laughs> um, or a bad daughter-in-law for that matter. So one of the things that we looked at in the first volume, also in the second volume, just coming out in the fall, is sleeping positions. And it turns out that pretty much every parent everywhere around the world has very firm ideas about 
what position a baby should be in when it goes to sleep. And in the U.S., the normative position for middle-class families is for the baby to be sleeping uh, horizontally in a separate space, often uh, not only in its own physical structure like a crib, but often in its own room, so way far away from anybody else. And uh, the goal of many middle-class American mothers those first few months is to train their infants to become, they consider, successful sleepers on their own. Uh, It turns out that in many, perhaps most parts of the world, the opposite is the case. A successful baby uh, sleeps attached to somebody who's moving (laughs) rather than separately um, flat. And when I was explaining all this in these radio call-in shows, the radio board started lighting up with dozens of callers of new mothers calling up saying, oh my God, I'm so happy you told me that. I've been sleeping with my baby and everybody's telling me I shouldn't. It's going to be too dangerous. I'll roll over and crush the baby. I'll teach the baby to be dependent on me. The baby will never become independent. I'll never get a good night's sleep. And on and on, lots and lots of reasons. I'll never have sex with my husband. The baby will be traumatized if the baby sees me having sex. So many reasons that we evoke for avoiding co-sleeping. So just hearing that most of the world's population today co-sleeps, And most of our ancestors, probably for the past three million years of our hominid history, co-slept, proved really refreshing and liberating for uh, many of our listeners. And that told me that the kinds of information that we had in this book that we'd packaged in a way that we hoped would be user-friendly was really speaking to ordinary people. It definitely is. And like the the first volume came out when exactly? Uh, that came out in the year 2000. It's been 16 years. And our editor at the press invited us to do a new edition uh, about two years ago, precisely because the first edition had sold so well, but he sensed that it was feeling a little bit old. The content was a little traditional. We definitely had a focus on traditional rural societies, and he invited us to update it a little bit. And at first, we thought we would add maybe one or two new chapters and then update the other ones. Um, And so I put out a call for scholars who are interested in the anthropology of childhood on a listserv that I'm part of um, to see if there was anyone out there who might like to propose a new chapter. And to my delight, I was inundated by proposals. And in the end, we had far more proposals than we could accommodate. That was unfortunate. (laughs) But we had so many fantastic proposals that uh, in the end, we actually... Uh, have produced almost an entirely new book. We only kept one of the the previous seven case studies, and we've added seven entirely new case studies. So the new case studies are all on contemporary uh, societies, all looking at really 21st century issues, childhood and parenting challenges among uh, refugees, for example, Somali refugees in uh, Minneapolis, war-torn zones. Uh, We have one chapter on Palestinian child-rearing challenges, uh, as well as Israeli uh, parenting uh, challenges, LGBT uh, issues, imported brides from Philippines and Thailand in the Danish islands of the Faroe Islands, immigration and immigrant issues. We have immigrants from Guinea-Bissau living in Lisbon, 
rapidly changing societies, Peru, uh, post-Civil War, and urban China are undergoing really momentous rapid changes. So lots and lots of contemporary issues that real parents in the 21st century um, are facing. I'm looking forward to reading the new versions with these um, new manuals. <laughs> Thank you, yes. F- faux manuals. Faux manuals. <laughs> faux manuals, indeed. Uh, although, in fact, um, two of our authors are uh, natives of the societies in, uh, and that they're writing about, so they're, they may not be as quite faux as uh, the first set were. <laughs> Good to know. Well, are there any last thoughts or advice you'd like to offer um, our listeners as we close out our conversation? Um, Since we're talking about writing, I would just say my advice is have fun with writing. I think so often we train our students to be afraid of writing, and there's almost a kind of writing phobia the way American society has recognized math phobia, but we haven't quite named it or recognized it. And that's a shame because writing can give the writer so much pleasure and the reader so much pleasure. Uh, It's one of the things that we tried to find in crafting this quirky, strange, hybrid genre of uh, faux manuals. (laughs) And uh, by no means am I urging everybody to write a faux manual, but if you follow your passion and allow yourself to enjoy the writing process, it may take you to some unusual places. That's beautiful advice. Find the art in your writing. Well, thank you, Alma. Appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Anthropod and that it inspired you to find the passion in your writing. I wanted to thank Alma Gottlieb for chatting with me about ethnography and writing, as well as James Foley at Brown University, who assisted us in recording this episode. If you're interested in checking out the new edition of A World of Babies, it is currently available from Cambridge Press. For those heading to the annual American Anthropological Association meeting in Minneapolis, SEA has a few events that you might check out. On Thursday, November 17th at 10.15 in the morning is the Culture at Large keynote address. Javier Ayero will speak on engaging with inequality and effective states. On Friday, SCA is having its business meeting at 12.15. You can meet our new board members and learn who won this year's Cultural Horizon Prize and the Gregory Bateson Book Prize. And later that night at 7.45, SCA is hosting a reception where you can learn about cultural anthropology's new sound and vision initiative. For locations, check out your conference program. Also, if you haven't heard, Anthropod is getting a makeover. Our production team has grown, and we're currently rethinking our approach to podcasting. In the months to come, we will be publishing episodes that are slightly different from the format you might be used to. That's right. We hope you'll find our upcoming experiments in podcasting interesting. Besides our shift in format, Anthropod is also accepting episode pitches from you, our listeners. If you have an idea, let us know. We will work with you in developing it into an episode. To pitch episodes, ideas, or offer your comments on the podcast, just email us. Our address is anthropod at collant.org. This information is available on the show notes for this episode, which can be found at callant.org. There, you can also find links to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And as always, to keep updated on new episodes of Anthropod and all the other great content on callant.org, follow us on Twitter at Collant and like Cultural Anthropology on Facebook. I think that's it. I'm Rupa Pillai. I'm Jenna Lindblad. Thanks for listening.